The Well is a gospel-centered church located in Boulder, Colorado. We exist to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. For more information about The Well, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org. So we're going to back up a little bit. This is you in circles. What we say is that every human being has a core self. The core self is what God gives us made in the image of God. It's early and it's loaded with potentiality. Sin is parasitic. Fundamental definition from Augustine and Calvin. Sin is always parasitic. It can only host on something good and corrupt it by either exaggeration or diminishment. You take any good thing about the human soul. Take cognition, for instance. And by the way, I was educated in the Reformed tribe. And they were heavy duty on cognition. And we become so rationally orientated in our spiritual journey, we don't know what an affection is. Sin traffics in hosting on that which is good and exaggerated. Exaggerated or diminished. We are made in the image of God and there is no orthodox theologian who argues that the image of God is so corrupt it's lost all and entirely its goodness. So we affirm that at the core of you, there is yet a core self that's affected by the fall and influenced by the fall for sure. And the way it's influenced by the fall is the moment you or I show up on this world, we show up with a primitive anxiety. And that primitive anxiety we're looking to manage. Now we're not consciously looking to manage, but we are relationally looking to manage that anxiety. And the way we adapt is called our primitive adaptive self. And every one of us learn a primitive adaptive self in order to manage the primitive anxiety that we have living in a world in which no parent is completely perfect. No parent is completely perfect. And that little person begins to make adjustments to the anxiety they feel. Like if they're real early and it's 2 a.m., they don't tell time, so they scream or cry relentlessly until you do get out of the warm bed and you come get them and hug them and hold them because they're borrowing your brain to help soothe that anxiety. And the way we show up with our presence determines what happens with the development of this little adaptive self. Now, if there's deep injury or neglect at that time, that child will so retreat within themselves, there's the risk of the child physically dying. When I was doing my clinical work at Christ Hospital in the south suburbs of Chicago, a trauma one level center, my supervisor made me go to the third floor and rock Keith. He was a little guy and he had failure to thrive syndrome. You know what failure to thrive syndrome is, right? I'm being fed, I'm receiving nourishment, but I'm dying. And the reason Keith was dying is because his life was so traumatic here that he was retreating within himself to manage the intensity of that anxiety. Now, in most normal little people, they start figuring out a way to manipulate you. Have you noticed? by, what would you say? <laughs> 12 months, 18 months, they develop strategies. And the development of those strategies we call the emergent false self. Because now they figured out a way to get what they needed from you by manipulating you. And that's what we all do continuously it only becomes more sophisticated. And that false self is an illusionary self 
It's a protective way by which we go about trying to be safe in relationships. Now, you know that the fundamental need in all human encounter for every person is that we feel what? Safe. It's that primitive, that we feel safe. Because if I feel safe, I then feel I belong. And as I feel like I belong, I now have a connection. What's happening here in this core self, emergent, adaptive self, and false self is that every single child is learning a strategy of trusting. And when the question was asked earlier, what do we mean by those primitive images or those primitive, uh, <clears throat> primitive representations? It has to do with primitive representation, primitive rep representation about how I can trust you. That's what's getting mapped in my brain neurologically. So I'm learning here from the get-go. Day one, is my world trustworthy or untrustworthy? Can I trust it or do I mistrust it? And that decision is made upon the quality of the presence of those who cared for you and me. And that determined my strategy of developing a false self so that I could feel safe in my relationship with you or anybody else in my world. This false self is an embodied self. We're embodied. We in the Reformed tribe, and if you're not in the Reformed tribe, we love you. We in the Reformed tribe are so cognitively structured, we forget we have a body, but we're embodied souls. And our bodies are means by which they inform the self and the self informs the body, except many of us are disassociated from our bodies for all sorts of reasons. The embodied self encounters through the gospel the presence of the living Christ. And there is granted to you in Christ a redeemed self. And that redeemed self holds all that you are. It holds your false illusionary self, it holds your adaptive self, and that redeemed self, which is now who you are in Christ, has this tremendous experience that we referred to earlier. You now have the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling here in your core self. And what the Holy Spirit is doing He's calling forth that which God gave you in his mind before he created you, your gifting. And he's calling it forth. He's calling forth all that you will be. And he's going to keep that going until you're transformed in a glorified body in the presence of the living God. And he's going to do it. Because as Jim said, he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. He's going to call forth what God designed you to be so that you become the resplendent manifestation of the glory of God in heaven, of what God intended. And at the same time, this regime self, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is working in this adaptive and false self, transforming those early dimensions of the human psyche that have been wounded by sin. You see, what happens to the development of the false self, you could say, is really the result of how we've been sinned against. And however you've been sinned against, you've developed a strategy to manage that. And so when we think about the transformation of the human soul, we often think about the nature of how persons have been wounded. Because we think that our own wounding in our human experience, it's what sets us on the trajectory to think, behave, feel, desire, remember, and imagine in distorted and perverted ways. 
And what God's Spirit is doing, He's coming to heal your woundedness. Isaiah 40 through 66, He's coming to heal and redeem and restore the nations and to restore His people. It's a restorative work. By the way, you don't repent of wounds. You heal them. You repent of sin. And we have two narrow categories when we come to the development of our psyche, the development of our Christian faith. We can identify everything as a sin we need to repent of, but a lot of our sinning, I'm going to say it this way, a lot of my sinning comes out of my woundedness. It comes out of my brokenness. And that's what God wants to heal. That's what God wants to make whole. And he's tenacious in getting to it. And you know way he's going to get to it? He's going to have you come to this church and live in this community so he can activate that wound so it may be healed. Isn't that a glorious movement of God's love? That he has not left you to be isolated in that old wounding, but he has called you to a place where actual healing can happen. We need to think that way relationally, that the movement in Christian spirituality and our redemption is for the forgiveness of sins and the healing of our souls. What else do we need to say about this parable? Just, well, that's a lot coming at you. What, what, are you, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Yes, sir. Yeah, can, good. Can, can we hold on to that? Because we want to kind of have something at the end, kind of some practical steps. If we don't address that, well, I'll make, try to get us to do that, okay? Yes, sir. What do we need to be aware of, or how do we be aware of abusive, how we can be abused in that? Someone abusing me and trying to heal me? Well, all of us need to be careful about assuming we're the healer of your wounds. I think God works through us as we do our best to love, appreciate, Forgive, bless, encourage another. But if I show up to say, I'm here to heal you, that generally doesn't go over well. Because I probably don't know really what needs healing. Yeah. What, and by the way, what does need healing is embedded in a person's story every time. So we need to be a listener to people's stories. And as we listen to people's stories, our, our role is to be helping people discover the significance of what they've lived. There's this adage by Parker Palmer that adults transform by discovery, not declaration. I, I think that's pretty true in part or in the main. And you, you have an adult discover their own journey. They'll tell you what needs to be healed. You don't have to tell them. And if, you're, if we are caught up in telling them, we're probably missing the mark anyways. Yes, someone here. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is a great dependence on the Holy Spirit because ultimately, the, 
our triune God is trustworthy. Uh, uh, you know, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Just all the promises we have of Scripture, the testimony of faith of the generations before us who have found the Lord faithful. So that's our bedrock, and yet the Spirit has chosen to work through flesh and blood because we're embodied souls. And so I have the great opportunity of letting the Spirit work through me to bring to you a hopefully a presence that is transformed and transforming. So I have a responsibility to live as best I can in step with the Spirit. Well, actually, the Spirit's here, but by, I'm, we're trying to illustrate my redeemed self that's trying to reclaim what is core about me because I've had a false self that I believe this, and this probably isn't in line with that. That the Spirit is trying to heal the wounds that came up on my adaptive self, trying to help call me to repentance for forgiving my false self stuff, promise to resurrect my body someday, and actually brings healing to my body. We can pray for healing. So I have a responsibility as best I can to keep in step with the Spirit so that is flowing through me to you. Yep. And then you have a responsibility to say, Jim's trying, but he's going to fail. And, and, and i got to forgive him. Or at least try. So we all do the best we can. <laughs> yeah. the, deep, the deepest wounding in any of us is back here and it's to our capacity to trust. And, and the journey in the community of faith is a journey of learning to trust. But, and we said this earlier, we said this earlier, and the reason why we said it is just this. My fundamental identity is in my participatory communion with God. That's my fundamental identity. If I lose sight of that identity, I will be inclined to overinvest my identity in the relationship with other people. That's when it will get, in, get me in tall weeds. And I have to keep that, and I have, to, I have to be really, really diligent of cultivating this sense of connection and communion with God, because that connection and communion, at the end of the day, it's all about trust. When we look at the gospel, what is the gospel essentially inviting us to do, anyone? To believe. Jesus said, John 14, believe in me. It's an invitation to revisit the most primitive need and, that, and task of the human soul, and that's learning to trust. The gospel is structured that way. And at the end of the day, folks, when it's all said and done, the last gesture of the human soul on this planet is we trust the living God. As we take our last breath. Yeah. Because, you know, now it's real or not. Absolutely. It's about, it's about trust. And the reparative work in the community of faith is cultivating our capacity to trust. But I need to anchor that where it needs to belong, and that is in my participatory communion with the Trinitarian God. And we say that over and over and over again, because it's in God that I discover my truest identity. We good? Yeah. Well, we could make it a little more sophisticated. You know, God's common grace to the person who hasn't come to faith is God is seeking and pursuing persons. He's seeking and pursuing. He's loving. So if we, if, we, if we haven't made a declaration of faith in Christ, we still have God pursuing us. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. He's seeking you. I, I just finished reading Muggeridge's autobiography. Muggeridge became a believer at 74. He was baptized. And he said the bell had been ringing for 40 years plus. So our conviction is if a person's raising those kinds of questions, then the bell is ringing. 
and God's invited. God's always invited. If we can have the courage of faith to step towards him and experience his love, it will be transformative for our soul. It won't be easy. It's never easy, but it'll be transformative. You know, we, we believe by common grace, the, the mother smiles at her child and, and loves well. No matter who they are. My wife and I just had dinner with a, a beautiful Indian family, Hindu. They have, they have a room where all their shrines are set up in their house. And they were very desirous to show us that. They love their children. They make no profession of faith in Christ, but God in his common grace blesses them with the capacity to love and be loved at some level. Now this, this ought to set us so free and enable us so much more than common grace does because of our participation in the very life of but God's grace is very big and very wide, very deep. Yeah, there's, other, a, there's one other piece to this that we didn't talk about that I think it's important to talk about because it helps us have realistic expectations when we live in community. <clears throat> you know, we've been around long enough in the community of faith now, close to 50 years, that you see movements and emphasis in the church. And the church now has an enormous emphasis on community life. Mission, have you heard about missional communities? You've heard about, you've heard about them. Have, have you heard, you know, life on life? You've heard about life on life? Yeah, you see, what we have is a bunch of idealized images of what community should be. And we haven't squared ourselves up to the realities of what the human soul is living. Certainly it's living out of its woundedness, but we also say there's this category. There's many, there's all of us that are living out of our weaknesses. Every one of us has weaknesses. And we're going to need to navigate those weaknesses. We're not perfect. Disabuse yourself of that. Don't try so hard. We have weaknesses, and those weaknesses are going to show up relationally. Paul said in Colossians 3, you got to forbear with each other's weaknesses. Yeah. It's not forgive their sins. It's not really so much a moral issue. It's just they're very annoying at times. Really annoying. And, and that, those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram done that, you know where your annoyance is. It's in your challenges. You're in your vices. I'm in my head a lot. That annoys my wife at times. And she ought to get annoyed because I'm in my head too much. Except for, you know, of course, except for Matt, I don't think he has any annoying things. But, um, you know, you're lucky for that. That's why we say you need to be at this church. You know. <laughs> On that one, he departs. <laughs> There's one other category we want to bring to your attention, and this is the most difficult category, and it's called damage. That there's some children that are wounded so profoundly and so deeply that neurologically the structuring of the neural networks in their brain are damaged. In other words, the possibility of repair, barring an outright miracle of God, is limited. And they will function with limited capacity relationally because of damage. Now, we say these things because we think we need to have a realistic view of what it means to live in community. If we don't have a realistic view of what it means to live in community, we're going to abort doing relationships. We're going to find some reason to do it, some reason to start avoiding it some reason to not being involved. And that kind of isolation, that movement to isolation is very dangerous for the relational soul because the relational soul is not designed to live in a privatized spirituality. It's designed to live in a community of faith. 
So we want you to robustly see what's going on in the human soul. Maybe you give an example of it, possible damage. Yeah, when we think when we think of when we think of damage, I I, I, mean, I give this illustration. I remember one time when I was pastor in the south suburbs of Chicago, I was called out to Louie and Angie's son out to their farm in, in the country because their son had a shotgun. And he would get up in the middle of the night and just start shooting it out in their cornfields. And these folks were in their 80s, and they literally were petrified that he would turn the gun on them. So they hospitalized Louis in a state hospital. And I went to visit Louis in that state hospital. And within 10 minutes, I met Jesus. I met Napoleon. I met Charlemagne. I met various historical figures from deeply damaged human beings. Now, I'm not saying anything that that kind of psychological damaging has anything to do with whether or not they have faith or not. That's a different category. But I do know that they're psychologically deeply damaged. And unless they're on heavy medication, they're probably going to injure themselves or somebody else. That's what we mean by damage. You're going to find people with significant weaknesses. Damage is on a continuum. And you're going to find people along the way in the community of faith who have a very limited capacity to trust you. Very limited capacity. And they're going to be hard to live with. But yeah. you need to know that's a part of being in the Christian Cause they'll, community. Because they'll expect you to do a lot of things that they can't even receive. Yeah. They'll, they'll expect you to be close and help them take, you know, and yet they can't let you be close. And then they get mad because you're oh. not close. But, yeah. they, but they can't stand you being close. So they'll sabotage any attempt to be close. And then be angry and say, these people really don't care. The well really doesn't care. Or whatever church you're from. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. That, that, wounds can set people up to do them. And all we're saying is just have categories from damage to wounds to weaknesses underlying that or maybe coming out of that sin. And if you have that, then you can kind of be a little bit more realistic in your small group. <laughs> okay? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you do the best you can. You do the best you can, and some of the time it gets where you, where you just can't do anymore. And you just say, I, 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 by God's grace, I've done everything I can do. We have to have some boundaries. This is taking too much out of our family. You know, there, I mean, there, there's some very real, you know, some people will hang out at your place all the time if you'd let them. You know, we were working, we, were, we're, we work with lots of people, and we were working with this group. We won't name them. But they had this philosophy that they, they love, they're all about community and their houses are wide open. So they left their front door open. They left the window shades up. They didn't uh, even have curtains. They didn't have curtains so that you could come on in. So one day the, the wife of the pastor of the church came downstairs and there was some 24-year-old in her refrigerator. And she goes, excuse me, what are you doing here? He says, well, I heard this was a community. I came in and get some food here. So at that point in time, they got a lock on the front door, they put shades on the windows, and they start putting drapes so they could close up. Because no human being can live entirely exposed in community. Bonhoeffer said that. We have to live as individuals at part, and we have to live in community. And we have to beware of the person who only wants to be in community, and we have to beware of the person who only wants to live in isolation. Alone. Alone. Exactly. See, we didn't mention one other important thing. We got a lot of stuff to say. See, back here, when you were really learning to trust, you were learning something else really, really important. And the way we get to that, if we were to meet with you, we would ask you these two questions. What was the emotional atmosphere of your family? That's a really big question. Significant question. 
What was the emotional atmosphere of your family? And what was the emotional atmosphere between your mom and your dad if they were together? What was the emotional atmosphere? Because that emotional atmosphere determined this. It determined your learned level of emotional intimacy. And you learned that really early on. I'll say, we'll give it, we'll be generous. Year three. You learn how close you can be to someone and be safe by 36 months. And that primitive learned level of intimacy is wired within you and it leads you and navigates, helps navigate you in how close you can be relationally. So if you're ever in a relationship and you wonder why we're kind of getting close and then there's all kind of avoidance going on, well, it's because you press too far into the primitive learned level of emotional intimacy and the person's had to back away from you. We all have a learned level of emotional intimacy. And a lot of us like being in our heads because emotional intimacy is challenging for us. Because emo relational connection and communion is about our emotional world. It's about my ability to know my emotional world navigate my emotional world and enter my emotional world because I learned about that emotional world and set the trajectory for how close I can be with anybody by 36 months. That's a big deal. Now that can be by God's grace. You know, our souls are permeable and the presence of others helps us. So it can change. And that's what that's what formation is. Formation is an exercise in developing our capacity, our relational capacity. To love God, love others, be loved. Love ourselves. That's sanctification. Questions you have? But it's going to take longer than you want it to, and it's harder than you want. Yes, sir. I didn't hear the last part. We're designed for communion with God. Why is there a need for uh, separation measure for, uh, from other we, people? We would say the answer to that is found in the Trinity. You have three distinct persons. One God. The, the Son is not confused with the Spirit, is not confused with the Father. Okay? So there is an identity that is not confused with the others, and yet there is a harmony, an agape, perichoresis, that, that John says, I just, here's how I have to describe it. God is love. So there has to be an identity, a separation, if you want to call it that. I, I, I have to be me in order to be with you. There has to be a father in order for there to be a, a son. In order for there to be a spirit, a spirit. Well... Community does help foster selfhood, but that's that's part of the maturation process is developing that sense of self. The sense, our sense of identity with God and with others, is cultivated over time. And some of us, like me, showed up with not a whole lot of skills on how to do relationships. So I had to learn that. I have to mature in that. I have to grow in that. And I still am. But but there, there but I have to. <laughs> I've got to step back and breathe and let that settle so uh, that there is a me that is solid and the me that I am is not just what you think I, I am or what I think you think I am.
Yeah, I don't want to use the word isolation. I would say it this way. You need probably more time alone because you need to be anchored more in Christ. Because the stakes are higher. I, I think about death in the way now at 60, almost 64. I couldn't even imagine at 44. Yeah. And certainly at 24. And when you see that coming, uh, that's a different existential reality. <laughs> Yeah. Our mortality impinges upon consciousness when you get past 60. Big time. And if you, you need to do your work in your 40s and your 50s so that when you get into your 60s, you can do your faith with integrity. If you don't do your work in your 30s and 40s and 50s, don't expect your 60s and 70s, if God gives you those many years, to go easy for you. We'll, we'll guarantee you that. We'll guarantee you that. Because there's certain learning of capacity and development of soul that we can only cultivate over time. And we need to be intentional about specific things like being in community, learning to trust, learning a solid sense of self, developing my communion with God so that when I get old and I know that that final threshold is coming, I can bear up with a sense of joy and peace and deep trust to make that threshold one of faith. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's a really good question, and I think that starts us right into the last practical things we want to talk about. Yeah, there. So we, yeah we've got We're, 10 minutes. we got 10 minutes to do this last piece. That'll probably be a half hour. So, dear girl, the, the answer to that is we're glad you're aware. You said you were an introvert. Yeah. Oh, you didn't say it. If, if, I'm sorry. If, you, if your cousin, if your cousin, I, I missed that picture. If your cousin's an introvert, um, it starts with awareness. Right, we want to say this. Part of this journey begins with awareness and is developed by awareness. And if I know that I'm an introvert, I need to be aware of that and I need to know where that pushes me and takes me. Now, for many introverts, we're inclined to just drift to be alone. And we have to be intentional. Awareness is the stepping stone to intentionality. And there's no human development of the human psyche at any level without some kind of intentionality. That's why God gave us volition. He gave us a volition so that we can act with intentionality. And if we act with intentionality, even if I'm an introvert, I can step towards relationship. But I'll have to be intentional. But it starts with a sense of awareness. And we want to suggest a couple things to you about awareness. Uh, again, most people live quite unaware. And we have two exercises that we've encouraged people to do to cultivate their awareness. And one of them is what we call a life map. Have you heard of a life map? Have you done a life map? Well, our life map is real simple. You take a sheet of paper, you place it horizontally, you draw a line down the middle of it, and you put kindergarten. And you write in that little top spot the most significant memories of kindergarten. And then you write under the line your emotion related to that memory. And then you do first grade, and second grade, and third grade remembering the most significant people and circumstances and events and the emotion associated with them. Then after you've done about three or four years, you write your, what did you start interpreting life to be? Who did you start deciding you were in light of those memories? That's a life map. Similar to the life map is what we have many of our uh, clients do, and that is what we call a body map. Same thing. Go to kindergarten. What's the most significant memories you had in your body in kindergarten? What did you feel? Then you do first grade, second grade, 
third grade, and you're only asking this question, what did my body experience? And you're paying attention to the emotions associated with what your body experienced. And then you're asking, again, the question, what interpretation did I start giving who I am in light of what I've lived in my body? Most people do not know or have paid little attention to what they have lived in their body. And yet their body is holding memory that's giving definition to how they navigate relationships in the present. Because here's the truth of it. Our feelings are states of our bodies. And so if I know states of my body by being attuned to my body, I can know what I'm feeling. And as Jim said earlier, there is no cognitive processing that's not influenced by my emotional world. None. It's not possible. There's no such thing as a pure objective thought. It's being influenced by emotion, my emotional world because of the nature of the neurological integration of the brain. So we start out by being aware. And simple ways of being aware are do a life map, do a body map. And maybe start asking your, yourself the question, what am I noticing today? about who I am. Just ask that simple question. Start with awareness. Maybe you'll have to even ask someone else, how are you experiencing me? Oh, that's scary. You know, that helps me become aware of at least what their perception is. So awareness. And the point for awareness is we have to do that because whatever we don't own will own us. Whatever I'm unaware of has kind of free reign in the basement of my soul to do its thing. So then, attentive. We got to alliterate, okay? Aware, attentive to what we've become aware of. We're really curious, kind of a curiosity. Huh, what is that telling me about me? And Rich talked about that, being kind of curious, attentive to my state of my body. I think helpful for some of us on this is asking others, what, what feelings did you have today? So it just gets them talking about their feelings, so it trains me about my feelings. And then maybe once a day or twice a day, I ask myself, what have I felt in the last hour or two? It just starts getting online an attentiveness around, around feelings. And the reason we say are so big on feelings is that because affection helps deepen a relational connection. You don't have an, a, a deep connection without some sort of affection. Love is not just a rational proposition. It's not an idea. I, at least I think I've, we've noticed that. Love has to do with affections, and it has to do with desire. And that leads us to our third A, aspire. What are you desiring? What do you long for? What do you most deeply desire? And what do you imagine for you. I read the Gospels, I read the Epistles, and it's staggering the kind of imagination that the Gospels and the Epistles are inviting us into. My dear friend in Chicago is dying tonight, and I read John 14 for devotions this morning. In my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. What do you imagine for you? What do you desire for you? We can imagine lots of things for lots of things, about a house, a car, a home, whatever. But what do you imagine for yourself? Have you given up on your desires? Have you given up on imagining God's working in you to call you to be who you are? He doesn't want you to be somebody else. 
He wants you to be who you are. What do you imagine? Because he can do far more than you think, or what does Paul say in Ephesians, or imagine. He can do that. The principle is you can't just say no to something about yourself. I, I, I just don't like that about me. I, you know, I don't like it that I, I turn away, can't look someone in the eye. You, you can't just say no and change. You have to say yes to something that's different from the no. So what, what's captured my imagination? Who do I, who am I aspiring to be? Just quickly, for healing your wound, you must discover the yes. For healing your deepest wound, you must discover the yes. You must discover what you're going to live to. You must discover what you're going to live towards. Because living towards that which you most deeply desire will be the means by which God's grace can heal wounds. Find your yes. And find your yes as it relates to your deepest wounds. Because it, we'll guarantee you, we'll say it this way, your deepest wounds are what's inhibiting you. We want to say it's my sin. We'll say it's your woundedness. Because your woundedness is activating that habitual sin pattern. Seek healing for your wounds. Find the yes for healing your wounds. And then, go ahead, Jimmy. Okay, I've got four A's. This last one is act. Okay, so I'm trying to be more aware. I'm attentive to what I'm become aware of. I'm aspiring to something. Now I got to do something. I got to act patiently, persistently. I persevere. In other words, I I start loving others as as best I can, like I would like to be loved. Mm-hmm. You know one of the things that I found as a pastor? People complained that others didn't pursue them. And I was just so emotionally out of touch, I'd ask, well, who are you pursuing? You know, like, well, that didn't create any reactivity. You know, kind of. You want to be loved? Love. Take a risk. You know, act. It's, it's going to be messy. Okay, we've already talked about that. People have wounds. Some are damaged. Some just have big wounds. All of us have our weaknesses. And we all have our sin. It's going to be messy. But but act. And, and, and here's where we want you to act with most intentionality is in your ordinary life. Yeah. Your ordinary uh, getting up in the morning. Your ordinary going to work. You're ordinary going to church. In other words, if we're if we're looking for something extraordinary as the means for transformation, we, you know, you're going to get those every here and there. But God's at work in your ordinary every day. Do I see it? Am I open to that? So in your ordinary, you want to cultivate more of a relationship with your spouse. We encourage, give your spouse five bids for their affection. A bid can be as simple as looking them in the eye and saying thank you. A bid can be just walking by in the kitchen and giving her a pat on the butt. Uh, groping is generally not a bid, but um, you know, something, something where, you're, where you're simply seeking to open the other up to the affection that you're bringing and then give it back. Simple thing. Being present. Richard already mentioned being present to your children. Which means put the damn phone away. If it's really important, someone will come find you. They know where you live. We remember a phone on the wall with a six-foot cord. I don't know how life survived, but we did. There's some just simple things you can do to act in a way that is giving yourself space and showing a true interest in another. 
do that. Do it in the ordinary. Because the ordinary of life is where relationships matter most. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having us, and thank you for being so attentive. It's a joy to be with you. We'll hang out here a little bit if you have another question. Well, let's give him a hand. Well, they have delivered. One is that uh, we actually taught a lot of the stuff they teach as far as uh, spiritual maturity through a series in January and February at our church. Um, and so that's all online in our sermon series. It, it would be funny if you got a lot of their material. You would laugh because it is verbatim what we were preaching through. Uh, so that's these are the guys who inspired. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, another thing is if you are looking to connect in community, which I hope you uh, see the importance of tonight. We have Connect Sunday coming up uh, this Sunday where you can meet a missional community and you can enter that long, patient journey of maturation with other people. Uh, and then thirdly, they wrote a book. They wouldn't promote this, but they wrote a book on all of this stuff, uh, which is really good, called The Relational Soul. And so everyone that's a leader at the well, we try to encourage them to read it. So I would highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon. And a lot of the stuff about attachment and relationships and the importance of relationships in life is found in that book. So that's called The Relational Soul. So if you guys want to hang out, chat with them, chat with Matt or I or anyone else, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for listening to The Well Podcast. For resources and information on how you can support our mission to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org.